Greetings and welcome to Your Place on the River, a podcast brought to you by Carriage Kia of Woodstock, Georgia, featuring Chattahoochee Nature Center. I'm your host, Larry Stevens, a naturalist and general bon vivant here at Chattahoochee Nature Center, where our mission is to connect people with nature. The CNC is a private, nonprofit 501c3 organization supported by our members and community at large like you. To learn more about the Chattahoochee Nature Center, visit chatnaturecenter.org. Today we'll meet our wildlife department, Catherine Dudek. Find out more about the Chattahoochee River watershed, learn about the importance of rehabilitation in conservation world, and enjoy a jolly visit with one of our longtime staff members. First up, let's hear from Wildlife Department Director Catherine Dudek. Catherine is a metropolitan Atlanta native who holds two degrees from the University of Georgia, a Bachelor of Science in Zoology with an emphasis on ecological studies and a Master's in Marine Sciences. She started working at the CNC in 1996 as a weekend naturalist, while during the week she taught biology, anatomy, and German in DeKalb County. After completing her graduate studies, Catherine assumed her current CNC position, in which she oversees the daily husbandry needs of our resident animals, as well as the more than 750 rehabilitation cases we receive annually. Here's our ever-ebullient Liam McCarty chatting with Catherine. Hello, everyone. This is Liam, and with us today we have the CNC's Director of Wildlife, Catherine Dudek. Catherine, thank you for joining us today. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. And it's our pleasure to have you. Before we get too into it, I would love to hear in your own words what day-to-day routine you go through here at the CNC. I know every day is different, but if that you have is true. constants. We have a few constants, lots of laundry, <laughs> lots of laundry to be done. But no, with, with me, I'm usually the first one in, in the mornings. I come in at the crack of dawn um, to try and get as much taken care of that is essential for the day. I will weigh out the diets for the birds of prey. I will go ahead, prepare the food for the opossums. If it's turtle and tortoise feeding day, I will get them eating, all of that, so that even we'll get some of the morning medications done as well so we can space their doses as far apart as possible, as close to 12 hours at a time as we can. And that way, when the remaining wildlife staff come in a couple hours later, we can go ahead and get working on cases that need more than one set of hands to manage, (laughs) uh, touch base, figure out what our above and beyond tasks are for the day, whether it be perhaps mowing the eagle aviary in the spring or doing a vet run to with a uh, an injured box turtle, something like that. Do you have any highs and lows specifically about it? <laughs> I would say some of it can get a bit monotonous, like weighing out the food every day. But I honestly enjoy doing that because we also have to record all of the leftover food from our animals. And so that's one of the signs of their health. If, for instance, one of them frequently leaves mice behind. We know something might be up. Is it the mouse order? Is it just that bird being persnickety right now? If you're consistently doing it, we need to weigh you, do a physical exam, make sure nothing else is going on. So it seems monotonous, but there's actually some technical involved in it as well. Yeah, for sure. There's uh, importance in the monotony for that. Exactly. And sometimes it is nice knowing you have at least one thing that's going to go right that day. (laughs) For sure. And just uh, from yearly stats, how many animals would you say you see in a year? So we, we being the wildlife staff at the Nature Center, the three of us are licensed only for birds of prey, reptiles, and amphibians. I say only loosely because that is roughly 750 to 780 cases a year. With some of the other clinics and licensed rehabbers closing their doors or 
starting to decrease the number of animals they take in, we are receiving their overflow and animals that would have gone to them, we are now getting. Oh gosh, and that's just the animals that we see like in person, not to mention the calls that we get per year. Yes, busy season, so baby season for mammals and songbirds would be springtime. That's on average between phone calls and emails, just, I have this baby bird hopping in my yard, what's wrong with it? (laughs) Things like that, busy season, we're looking at well over 500 phone calls and emails each month. Gosh, you mentioned busy seasons, and just from our prior uh, conversations, uh, one of the busy seasons is right now. It is, even though it is not baby season. (laughs) For us, this is busy season because, well, our, our second busy season, I should say. This is the time of year that all of the raptors that hatched earlier this year are truly on their own, learning the ways of the world and being 100% self-sufficient. But that also coincides with winter storms coming in, ice storms, cold temperatures, things that they would need to obtain more food for, things like that. Coupled with, while most of our animals don't migrate south for the winter, the ones up north do. So the population here increases. Mm. And so the already established animals, the resident animals, so to speak, now have additional competition from all the northern animals coming down. And you have to take care of all of those new birds that come down as well. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you mentioned busy season. I know that the time change affects that as well. It does, especially with barred owls. B-A-R-R-E-D, barred owls. (laughs) They are most active at dawn and dusk. Um, Scientists call it crepuscular because they love to come up with fancy names for things. So you have nocturnal, diurnal, and crepuscular. It's actually not unusual to see a barred owl at three in the afternoon on an overcast day. But they are most active at dawn and dusk. And unfortunately, when the time change happens, especially in the fall, that means their rush hour is identical to human rush hour. And just, (laughs) we only had the time change a few weeks ago and we've already received almost two dozen barred owls in rehab since that time change. Oh my gosh. Yes. Uh, Well, in that scenario, God forbid someone does run into a barred owl on the road or they see a boxer getting chewed up by a dog. What's the best thing to do in that if someone's calling uh, the nature center? So unfortunately, we do not have the manpower or the equipment to go all over the state to pick up. There are some organizations that do volunteer to do animal pickup. But we always request that, that people call us first. Now, granted, of course, hit by a car, barred owl, or a dog chewed box turtle clearly is going to need assistance. If they can safely capture it and contain it, we can walk, organize, or we can get with them to transport it to us. If they need assistance in how to gather, how to capture, we can do that as well. But the vast majority of those phone calls and emails we get are actually juvenile animals or animals behaving normally, even if adult, but the humans don't think they're behaving normally. (laughs) And so, for instance, we had a call earlier this week that there were three, the fellow wasn't sure if they were vultures or owls. I'm not sure how he couldn't tell the difference. All right. Three vultures standing in a row on the side of the road, and animals shouldn't do that, so something's wrong with them, and he wanted to report it. That's completely normal for vultures. They are, black vultures are flock animals. There's radiant heat on the road. There may have been roadkill on the side of the road that they were going to feed on. 
but mm -hmm. we always like to have that phone call ahead of time so we don't waste their time, hours, or stress the animal out if unnecessary. For sure. I get the feeling that uh, if someone is unsure of what to do, even if they call uh, the wildlife clinic, you can at least have some information for them to it, help them take it to either you or someone who can help. Exactly. Somebody who is licensed for that species if it's deemed as in need for rehab. Gotcha, gotcha. Some common questions. One of these I don't necessarily agree with, but I'll <laughs> go ahead and ask. A common question is, why shouldn't you let nature take its course with a sick or injured animal? Funny, we get that question a lot. Um, usually not by the people that bring us said animal. <laughs> so I'm going to answer this both professionally and personally. So the vast majority of cases we receive are directly or indirectly caused by human impact. And sometimes I mean that literally. Vehicle collisions, barbed wire fences, rodent poisoning, shootings. That's what we commonly see. That's not mother nature. No. <laughs> I kind of I liken that to, Liam, as much as I think you're an awesome person, if you are having a heart attack right now, should I let nature take its course? Or would you like me to intervene in this and <laughs> provide sure. help? <laughs> um, yes. So I personally think we have a moral and ethical obligation to assist animals or humans in need, especially when they are in pain. A lot of what we have to do, as much as I hate to say it, a lot of what we have to do is humanely euthanize. Easily 50% of what walks in the door in the first 48 hours because we see the worst of the worst. We're like an urban hospital on a Friday night sometimes. Mm. We've had hawks come in with no feet because they were caught in leg hold traps meant for coyotes. That's our day-to-day -day sometimes. And so humane euthanasia is the best option in that scenario. I don't want that animal to have to suffer needlessly in pain because nobody wanted to stop to even attempt to get it help. It may only affect that one animal that we help, that somebody wanted to just let nature take its course, but we're able to rehabilitate it and release it to the wild. That's only one animal. But for instance, when it comes to box turtles, they live 75 years and they're not even able to become parents until they're almost 12 years old. So if we can get an adult back out there, there's a good chance it will have the opportunity to breed and spread those genes. Mm, helps the population in general. Exactly. No, I think the biggest thing that sticks out to me when you said that was that it's not, most of these things that you're helping with is not nature. Correct, correct. Another question is, why uh, don't a lot of vets take injured animals? So one of the reasons they don't, and there are definitely phenomenal vets who do accept wildlife, but you usually don't study wildlife medicine or exotic medicine in vet school. You study dogs and cats, you study livestock, maybe companion birds. But if you go to a dog and cat vet with, say, for instance, a southern flying squirrel, <laughs> they might not know what their diet is. Or do they need UV because it's a solely nocturnal animal? <laughs> you know, things like that. There's just so much more to take into account when you're dealing with wildlife. They also typically don't have the caging for that type of animal, the food for that type of animal. Their digital x-ray has honestly made, made it much easier for rehabilitators because if a vet does accept the animal, they're like, oh, it's got a broken leg. Can I send you an x-ray to see if you think it's repairable? 
because they aren't trained in this type of thing. Mm -hmm. There are also state and federal laws that wildlife rehabilitators must follow. For instance, you can't legally amputate a bird's wing above the elbow joint. As rehabilitators, we know this. Veterinarians don't because it's not part of their coursework as it is with us. So we have had birds sent to us that vets have amputated an entire wing from. Mm. And they just assumed we'd be able to put it on exhibit. And for many reasons, that's not good for the bird. Lots of long-term uh, health issues. But no facility in the country, because it's a federal law, can legally put that bird on exhibit. So they did needless surgery for a bird that required euthanasia by law. Gotcha. Which only uh, stands to reason to call us first, even for just information. It, it's a partnership for sure between veterinary medicine and, and wildlife rehabilitation. Absolutely. You uh, you came to the Nature Center in 96 as a naturalist, right? Yes, I did. <laughs> well, what brought you here to start with? So I'm an only child and my parents, despite the fact they were born and raised in Atlanta, their families were from the country, <laughs> like South Georgia country and North Georgia country. And they wanted me to know, my parents wanted me to know that meat doesn't come from the grocery store. You know, bread is not something that's just at the bakery. So I literally grew up fishing and deer hunting and dove hunting and baking bread and making soap and things <laughs> like that. And so my parents would take me camping up in North Georgia back when when uh, US 19 Georgia 400 was literally a two-lane road that took forever to get to get up to Dahlonega or Helen from Atlanta and my daddy taught me what foods were edible out in the woods how to forage things like that and would and mom and dad would teach me all about the animals out there and then I'd come back to Decatur you know, here I am in the 70s, come back to Decatur, and my next door neighbor, my best friend, had no idea what a red-tailed hawk was. <laughs> and there was one sitting in our backyard. So I decided very, very early on that I wanted to work with native wildlife. I didn't want to be a vet. I didn't want to work at zoos with exotic wildlife. I wanted to work with animals in our area. And Chattahoochee Nature Center was a natural fit when I got out of, uh, when I finished my bachelor's degree. Yeah, for sure. I uh, was specifically talking about the wildlife department. What contributions to the Nature Center as a whole would it make, or what, what big changes are you looking forward to uh, coming up soon? So, without the wildlife department, we wouldn't have the animals on exhibit for all of our visitors. We wouldn't for have sure. the education and program animals that are both utilized on-site and off-site for school programs, scouts, civic groups, church groups, things like that. So we can teach multiple generations about the natural wildlife around them. So we're behind the scenes, but we're also right in the forefront, <laughs> kind of simultaneously. It's, a, it's an odd position to be in. The biggest thing we are looking forward to right now is rebuilding our red-shouldered hawk aviary. It is 21 years old and mm -hmm. it is ready to be replaced. All of our other aviaries and our beaver house have all been renovated and replaced in the last 24 months or so. That's our remaining one. There are a few other things we're hoping to do. Of course, this summer was incredibly sweltering mm -hmm. with heat indices well over 100. We hope to put misting systems in the aviaries. We're already going down on a regular basis in the heat and misting the birds and things like that. But of course, that's more manpower, more time taken away 
on 127 acres <laughs> that we could spend towards the animals that are in rehab or that need additional enrichment or things like that. So the misting systems would be fantastic, especially since it doesn't seem like our summers are going to be getting any cooler For sure, than they yeah. are. Hoping to have backup generator systems installed for all of the animal exhibits, life support systems, because... Our winters are also <laughs> a little um, bit colder. They're, they're getting a little colder in short spurts, but the ice storms are still coming. And of course, the biggest fear for the wildlife department is always when there's a power outage because we have 150 animals in our care, not including the, the rehab cases. And so it's not unusual with the chance of an ice storm or a power outage for wildlife staff to spend the night at the nature center. So we can, if for some reason we can't get in because power lines are down. We don't know when we'd be able to get in to feed or medicate all of these animals, so we spend time on the property. Never fun, but... <laughs> yeah, I mean, that just speaks to the commitment that you guys have made to this place and these animals. Well, it's incredible. I have a fantastic staff, and I have fantastic volunteers that are just as dedicated, and there's no way I'd be able to do this without them. <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, the last thing I want to touch on before we close out this segment, uh, I want to bring us back to our mission statement, connecting people with nature. Yes. You've already talked about a few ways you do that, saying that you're on the front and behind the scenes. Right. Uh, but since you've been here, uh, how much progress have you seen on that front? Oh, it's absolutely incredible. Back when I was a naturalist in the education department, we would have school groups come out or birthday party groups come out. And if you've been to the Nature Center before, you know we're not in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> we're surrounded by subdivision and a river across the street. But we would have visitors at the events that weren't comfortable even taking a hike on the property because if they went too far away on one of the trails in spring when all the trees were leafed out, they couldn't see a building or a road and they panicked. Mm. We've had calls from people on our trails because they got lost. Despite the fact the trails are clearly marked, they just couldn't see civilization in their mind. And that has completely changed. Nowadays, people are so much more involved in outdoor activities, environmental education activities, that it's fantastic to just see the numbers of people, the diversity, the age groups, the ability levels of the visitors just really engaging in all aspects of the property. That's incredible. Well, I think that's all the time we have for our segment, but thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, it was my pleasure. I had a great time. And uh, we're so incredibly thankful for you and everything that your team does uh, here at the Nature Center. Well, thank you, Liam. Thank you, Catherine and Liam. Next, Liam and I learn more about what a watershed is from our education program supervisor, Mark Giolanella. I'm pretty sure that a watershed is more than just a little building made of water. Hello, this is Liam McCarty again. And this is Mark Giolanella. And today, uh, we're going to be talking about some qualities of the river with you, Mark. What are we going to be talking about today, specifically? Today, we're going to learn a little bit about the Chattahoochee River watershed and what a watershed is. Oh, well, obviously, my first question is, and for most of the viewers, what is a watershed? Sure. Well, a watershed um, is an area that the water all drains to a specific part of the river. So if you're thinking about the best way to explain a watershed, or sometimes you might hear it called a river basin, is if you were to imagine taking your hands and putting them together so that you're looking at all those lines on your hands, all those lines that make up your palms, and you put those hands together, and where your hands meet is the main river. And then all the lines in your hands heading towards there 
all of the little streams and tributaries and other bodies of water that flow right into that river. And that's what, in order to imagine the picture of watershed, is what a watershed is. Oh, awesome. And for the audio listeners, I'm definitely doing this as he's telling me about it. It's actually a really cool example. In that case, there are watersheds and river basins all over the world. What makes the Chattahoochee River uh, watershed so specific, so special? So uh, one of the things that makes the watershed of the Chattahoochee River so special, especially where, where we live in metro Atlanta, is that it is the smallest watershed an area supporting the largest population in the country in terms of watersheds. Oh, that's really awesome. That answers my next question about how big it is compared to other uh, uh, watersheds. You think it's the smallest compared to like size of the river? What I'm saying is that so compared to the, the size of the area that it drains, right? It's got to support the largest population. Gotcha, right. gotcha. Because, you know, if you think about Metro Atlanta, it's a fairly large area with a lot of people. And then if it's a relatively small area as far as square miles that it's rivers draining, it's supporting the largest amount of people for a smaller size watershed. Yeah, for sure. Why would it be important to understand watersheds, specifically this watershed that, again, like you said, so many people rely on? Sure, so if you think about why it's so important is that you said so many people rely on this watershed. So here, if you think about the Metro Atlanta area, that area, gets about 70% of its drinking water from the Chattahoochee River. 70%? 70%. Or about 5 million people. Gosh. That, that's a lot. How many people was that again? I'm so sorry. 5 million people. So, 5 million so people. So you can think about it as a percentage or about 5 million people. And that is really just talking about the area around Metro Atlanta. Yeah, right? for sure. So the whole river, if you think about the whole Chattahoochee River, it's going to be 434 miles for the whole river. But we're thinking about the river here in Atlanta, and that's actually about 300 million gallons a day of drinking water. And that's incredible. Other than drinking water, I know it's a huge natural resource, again, for all of Metro Atlanta, but other than drinking water, what else do the people of Metro Atlanta use the Chattahoochee for, or the watershed? Sure, so the, there's all sorts of uses for the watershed and for the uh, water directly in the river. There's agricultural use. We talked about the, just the drinking water. There's mm -hmm. industrial use. There are a number of industries up and down the river, especially when you get closer into um, Atlanta. There's also hydropower. So um, hydropower from dams is created to create electricity. So with that, uh, the size of, of the upper Chattahoochee watershed, where we're, we're talking about an area of about 1,823 square miles. And if you were then to expand that to the whole length of the river, you're talking about an overall area of 8,770 square miles. And that's really thinking about that whole length of the river going all the way through Georgia. Gosh, again, that's not just for Metro Atlanta, but uh, there's so many, like you said, industries, like power plants, mm -hmm. uh, they get power from the river. Right. That's incredible. Right, so the, the power, and that's mainly created through hydroelectricity, which mainly created through, through dams or other impoundments. And the river is dammed 13 times through dams or other impoundments through its entire length. Oh, wow. Well, it sounds like the watershed is vital to Metro Atlanta, mm -hmm. specifically. What can we do to protect our watershed? Sure. Well, you know, some of those things you probably think about or hear about is, uh, you know, reducing the amount of pollutants that go into the river. So thinking about the agricultural waste, industrial waste, 
the biggest pollutant to the river is sediment. So you think about with that, all of that Georgia clay that washes into the river, that's where you that you see sometimes they'll put in those uh, those buffer zones up and down the river that help protect the river from, that's why there's laws against developing along the river or regulations for that. Mm-hmm. That helps with keeping that sediment from washing into the river. And so there's all sorts of things of that nature. So those dams, you know, there's a lot of conversation about if those dams are going to continue or if they should continue operating or should they sometimes be removed and so that's a lot of conversation around that that happens as far as what is the best use for for the river yeah for sure and we talked about a lot of uses for like metro atlanta what about the natural uh, flora and fauna around for the watershed sure so a lot of the flora and fauna around the watershed are protected like if you think about the area here where we are you're going to see a lot of protected parklands, such as the Chattahoochee River National Recreation Area. That protects a lot of the native flora and fauna along the river. So that whole areas are protected from development so that they can maintain their natural populations. Also, you have a number of opportunities where they are uh, restoring some of those tributaries, like I mentioned, that flow to the river. So a lot of your you know, fish habitats or aquatic life habitats are being restored and protected that way. Awesome. Before we end out the segment, just talking about the protecting of the, our watershed specifically, over the few, past few years you've been here, have you seen any progress, any huge leaps in taking a better stance on protecting our watershed? Sure. Well, there are certainly a lot of things that have progressed over the years. Uh, you know, many years ago, people would talk about how the river was incredibly contaminated and dirty. It is actually the cleanest it's ever been. Oh, wow. Um, so it continues to improve. Uh, it's definitely a uh, continued work in progress, but through proper treatment, proper protection of the watershed, the river will just continue to get more and more healthy. Mm, let's hope so. Well, thanks again so much, Mark, for uh, having me on your segment. And I think that's all the time we have for today. Great, excellent. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thank you, Mark and Liam. As you can tell, Mark has a love of the outdoors and teaching others about nature. He grew up paddling the lakes and rivers of New England, but now enjoys exploring the waterways of Georgia. He oversees our public programs that include canoeing, birthday parties, scout, and family programs. Let's hear now from our wildlife department, Jeremy Maniapanda, to take a look at the importance of rehabilitation in the conservation world. One of our roles as wildlife rehabilitators is to accept an injured wildlife within the purview of our permits, evaluate their condition, create a treatment and rehabilitation plan, and follow through on that plan. The ultimate goal of wildlife rehabilitation is to help these animals recover to the point of release to the wild to ultimately pass on their genes to their offspring. Of the species we take in, a number of them are what's called a protected species. This means that law has generally prohibited them from being taken, collected, held, or harmed without specific exemptions. We here at Chattahoochee Nature Center have the necessary permits and exemptions to hold and treat them as needed, but without them, one cannot possess them without genuine intention to transport to a licensed person. All things told though, protection does not equate to endangered. Most of the animals we work with are not endangered, nor an immediate risk of extinction. So what's the difference? Why protect a species if it's not endangered? And more to the point, why rehabilitate a species that aren't in vulnerable numbers in the wild? To help understand this, there's a number of issues to consider. First, what role do these animals play in the environment? Animals like birds of prey are considered top tier animals in the food chain. 
meaning they prey on animals that ecologically need them to keep the prey animals' populations healthy and controlled. Other animals, such as box turtles, can be important in terms of seed dispersal of plants and vegetation they may eat. Secondly, and this is a major concern for us, are these animals at risk? Despite not necessarily being at risk of extinction currently, there are absolutely risks which they are susceptible to. For example, the aforementioned birds of prey and box turtles are both very susceptible to exploitation by hunting and collection for various reasons. How can an animal that is very numerous be at risk though? A simple lesson learned is through our own human history with these wild animals. With that, as an example, the passenger pigeon was native to all of the eastern United States in the late 1800s and had a population estimated at about 5 billion birds. Flocks spanned for miles and miles and can turn the sky dark as they flew overhead. In 1860, a singular flock of estimated 3.7 billion birds flew over Ontario, Canada. It was believed to be the most abundant bird in the world. By 1914, though, that species had gone completely extinct. In less than 50 years, it went from the most abundant bird on the planet to completely extinct due to lack of protection from hunting and habitat destruction. With these specific birds, one of the specialized adaptations they used was a trait known as social breeding, where courtship and breeding only would initiate in large flocks, not in smaller flock sizes, and they would nest in huge aggregations. It wasn't uncommon for passenger pigeon colonies to establish about 100 nests in a single tree. In 1871 in Wisconsin, an estimated 136 million breeding birds in a colony were recorded in an area of approximately 850 square miles. Once it was noticed that the populations seemed to be in dire conditions, it was unfortunately too late. With the last wild bird being seen in Ohio in 1900 and the captive collection waning until unfortunately passing of the final passenger pigeon on September 1st, 1914 in the Cincinnati Zoo. So, what can we learn and understand from this case study? First and foremost, no species is safe from the threat of extinction, no matter how numerous they may be and how prevalent they may grossly seem, particularly with species that have the potential for being overexploited. Preemptive protection is paramount in ensuring there is no lag between a viable population and a critical population. But let's also consider full circle back to the beginning of the segment, one of our missions as wildlife rehabilitators. We've explained why these animals, no matter how numerous they may appear at any given time, are very important for protection, but let's also consider the population benefits for that species. The goal of all organisms, in a scientific sense, is to pass on their genetic information to future generations. This is the core tenet of evolutionary biology, with the catchphrase we've all heard, the survival of the fittest. When the animals are injured and are incapacitated by non-natural means, such as car strikes, fence or window collisions, or even overt animal involvement, such as gunshot injuries, it impairs the population's natural gene flow. These traits and features of the fittest animal may not fit these anomalous or abnormal conditions, and in simpler terms, it harms the population's genetic diversity. Being able to return animals to the populations helps keep the species stronger, more diverse, and better functioning moving forward. As such, the lesson we can learn is that practically all species deserve conservation efforts in order to preserve their place in our environments for ages to come. Thank you, Jeremy. Jeremy grew up in Buffalo, New York, and says he has been catching and keeping animals since he could walk, and I have witnessed that he has not stopped since. 
He has a degree in biological sciences from Cornell University and spent more than 23 years working with exotics in public zoos and aquariums. He joined the CNC as a licensed wildlife rehabilitator in August 2021. We look forward to hearing more from Jeremy in future episodes. And finally, we want you to meet one more of the many people who make Chattahoochee Nature Center such a great place to connect with nature. Originally from the United Kingdom, Celia Steigerwall's love of nature was inspired by her time spent as a child with her father, who was the warden of a bird reserve. When she arrived in Georgia, she immediately sought a place to volunteer and discover Chattahoochee Nature Center, where she has worked for more than 30 years as a personal assistant, camp counselor, camp assistant, camp manager, naturalist, and event staffer. Her full-time job now is leading a classroom of 4th through 6th graders at a local Montessori school, but she still works at the CNC as a part-time naturalist and events staff. She is trained to handle CNC program animals such as hawks, owls, opossums, snakes, and turtles. So give a listen as Liam helps us get to learn more about Celia. Hello everyone, Liam again, and here with me today, like Larry said, we have Celia Steigerwald. Celia, thanks so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Well, I've talked to a few other people uh, who work at the Nature Center so far, and they all seem to have in common this passion for nature and education. You've been with us for 30 years, I believe. Where did you first find that passion? Well, I think it all starts when you're a child, and as a very young child, my mother was a guide captain, which is equivalent of a Girl Scout leader here, and apparently all the guides had to take care of me as a baby when I was in the middle of a bell tent post-World War II. So that's going back a ways. But my dad was a warden at an observatory and used to go help my dad. So I would take the birds out of the mist net, carry them to be weighed, and spent a lot of time outside. Every holiday was hiking or bicycling. It was all outside. So that's where it all started. That's incredible. And just looking at your bio, I'm seeing that you have... Uh, degrees in geoecology, geology, education. You're also a Queen's Guide. And for those of you listening, that's basically the UK's version of an Eagle Scout. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. That's incredible. In that case, we have something in common, Celia. Wow. <laughs> Not me being the Queen's Guide, but... Well, I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, how did you first find the Nature Center? So we moved here from Germany, that's my family and I, and at that time in Germany I was running for the army a playgroup for young children. So when I came here, I do like my children, but I like them to be around other children too, so I was looking for something and I ended up at the nature center when I was looking for something to do and they ended up going to playgroups and school, but I ended up working in education here. So the geology thing wasn't working for me at the time because I'm the wrong gender, at least I was back then. (laughs) Well, I'm still the same gender I was back then. (laughs) (laughs) However, when I went to try and get work as a geologist, it wasn't working. So anyway, I started working for education here and loved the people and loved the work. And oops, I'm still here. (laughs) And thank goodness. We're so glad you are. Uh, You started with volunteer work, correct? I did. At that time, education did use volunteers to run a lot of their education programs. And so you were basically doing what paid naturalists do now. But what a great group of volunteers. And it was so close and so friendly and so sort of family oriented and sharing jokes and sharing good times and learning so much. I mean, I did not know how to pick up a snake. When I first came here, I wasn't familiar with snakes. So (laughs) I had a lot to learn and I enjoy learning. So 
it was definitely the job for me. Yeah, incredible. I, I, I feel that uh, happens a lot here. You will learn while you teach people. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned that your that your kids were involved in the a uh, few different camp programs and on campus programs as well. How was that for you as a, a mother dropping off your kids at like Camp Kingfisher? So volunteering kind of morphed for me, and I ended up working here. So um, wasn't the plan, but that's how it ended up, and I ended up working in camp. So that's great because you take your kids to work with you and they get taken care of while you're doing your job and they loved it. <laughs> um, my daughter, the youngest one, ended up with a total passion for animals and she went through that phase that lots of girls do, like I'm going to become a vet. So here was the place to be and she ended up volunteering in wildlife to get enough hours to apply for college. So. As a family, we've been somewhat invested in the Nature Center. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I believe I was talking with Alicia last episode, just talking about generations who have been at the uh, Nature Center now. And, uh, I mean, your son, Sean, is still here as well. He's still working here, too. He came back, so that worked for him. His career as a ballet dancer, that's not exactly a full-time career. So, for him, it worked as a great part-time job. Yeah, for sure. It's pretty impressive just to say I work at a nature center and I'm a ballet dancer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just speaking on the arts specifically, you've been involved with the arts for I don't even know how long, I assume most of your life. But you volunteer at the Shakespeare Tavern as well. Something at the nature center we try to do here is bring people to nature through different means. One of them, primarily arts, crafts engagement, different things like that. Do you have any experiences uh, in that or any thoughts? I think it's just super important. Like for small children, which is where I'm attracted, young children, is how can they build up their knowledge base unless they have practical experience. So they have to come, they have to you know, dig in the dirt, and they have to smell the dirt, and they have to look at the dirt, and they maybe have eat to the dirt. <laughs> eat the dirt, exactly. Or and they have to hear the birds, and then they've got reference points, so that then when they do other things, they've got a point of reference for them, and they can make connections. For adults, who I also enjoy partly because they bring their experiences with them, so you get to hear about all their experiences. But I love trying to share what the Nature Center has to offer, not just the wildlife, because we have lots of that, but the beauty, the history, and the art connection is not is not hard. I mean, there isn't a piece of art that hasn't been inspired by some real experience. So you got to have that real experience. So you got to get out there in nature so that you can be inspired to do the art. And as humans, we're models for that too. So there's nothing better than seeing a kid who sees their first ladybug or smells that first strange smell at the nature center as they're walking past the vulture cage and <laughs> says what's that it's thrilling <laughs> <laughs> oh well that's uh incredible uh, and i think that's all of our time for now but uh thanks so much for talking to me about the arts how nature's involved with that and thanks so much for being at the nature center for so long we really we're really lucky to have you being absolutely my pressure, and I would say I'd do 30 more years, but who knows? Here's <laughs> <laughs> open. Thanks so much, Celia. <laughs> Thank you, Celia and Liam. By the way, our terrific interviewer, Liam McCarty, is from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, where he achieved the rank of Eagle Scout while developing a love of the outdoors. He attended the University of Southern Mississippi, studying theater with an emphasis in performance. Liam is currently a member of the rental staff here at Chattahoochee Nature Center. 
That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening to Your Place on the River, brought to you by Carriage Key of Woodstock, Georgia, featuring Chattahoochee Nature Center, where our mission is to connect people with nature. Remember, to learn more at any time about Chattahoochee Nature Center and what's happening here, please visit chatnaturecenter.org. That's C-H-A-T-T naturecenter.org. This podcast is a production of BG Ad Group. All rights reserved.